Maguire, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lennon. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Grand Slam Molecast. Good evening. Good evening, dishwasher. Um... I asked you at the start of last week, did you ever fear we'd be beaten by Scotland? I never had any fear that we weren't going to win that game against England, even when we were playing like a bit of a toe for the first 15 minutes. Tell me, you were both at the game, please tell me your experience of the game and how you how you thought it went in a very general sense. Yeah, there's always a bit of trepidation. Well, of course there's, there's trepidation when you're going to try and win a, a final of some kind, win a trophy. So this essentially was a final. So I might refer to it as such. Um, if you didn't care, you could possibly produce a great performance. But if you didn't care, you wouldn't be in a final. Uh, so nerves are a necessary function of the high end of competition. And in the high end of competition, when there's a trophy on the line, the only important thing, the most important thing is that you win. So... It wasn't particularly close in the end. It wasn't close in any regard. England only scored um, their their first and only try to match through a 12-man mall when the game, 70-odd 70, 70 minutes, the game was already lost. Um, but yeah, there was, there was periods when Ireland played poorly. Looking back, actually, at the match, it, I didn't think that we, we played as poorly. I had a sort of a, an inverse... Uh, reaction to how I normally see it. Sometimes you watch a game uh, first time when you're emotionally invested in it and you think, Jesus, we actually played pretty badly. And you watch it a second time and maybe it's because you've geared yourself for a thing that you played badly. Oh, it wasn't that bad. And this one I thought we played reasonably well and that England were very quick off the blocks, very abrasive um, and, you know, disrupted us. And then when I watched it back the second time, uh, I saw that, you know, we made... We made errors in which which we hadn't made in other in other games of the championship, and more errors basically. And how that really manifests itself, like we've put some balls on the ground in every uh, in every game of this championship, but it's really the case of mental knock-ons in this in this game. But I never felt particularly like I never got a, a gloomy feeling. Like, oh, we're not going to win this. I was just like nervous. Um, so I thought that um, I guess certainly a, a, you know a great relief to for when Dan Sheehan got in and scored a try, and then the Henshaw try I felt game's up, you know. So the last everything after that was was pure gravy, a great feeling of um, contentment, and happiness for the players out there, and I think there was everyone in the stands was so and everyone sitting around was so enthusiastic and. And um, there was no, oh, fuck's sake in Ireland at all throughout the game. Really, now that I think of it, incredibly little. So people were very uh, buoyant and, and it's, it's fantastic to see the players up close when they're doing their, their lap of honour and they look tired, but they look so satisfied. You know, much more satisfied than relieved. They look really happy. There was on this oh, emotion, like adrenaline plug. You know, it's just a, like really happy. Uh, so it was, it was great being in the, in the stadium for it. It was wonderful. The whole, like we were, we were in the stadium for ages afterwards. Just such a great, happy atmosphere. Every time I see the players in person, I can't get over how young they look, but I think that's, that's more my problem. <laughs> no, I'm the same. I'm the same. How did you, how, what was your take on being in the stadium? Going in, like everyone expected Ireland to win going in. I, I think that's important to bear in mind. And people were like 15, 18 points. I think that recency bias that we discussed a few times definitely kicks in 
you know, England had 50 stuck on them by France at home. Their smallest win of the, of the championship, 13 points. Yeah, ergo, they'll be shit. I, I thought it would be about 12 points, and I thought that England would struggle to score more than us, and I thought that it would be a very physical game. But So it played out exactly like that. It doesn't make it any easier watching it. Like, there is a, a bit of me that at tense, at 10-9 in particular just go, oh, like, don't, don't let them in. Don't, don't let them get to 12. Like, don't let them get ahead. Don't give them something to defend. Um, and we were down very low, so it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very different angle watching a, an international, because typically an international, you watch it on telly and you're, you're quite elevated. And even at the match, like, most, most seats are elevated. And if you're in, like, the, the upper tier of any one of the, either, either of the Aviva stands, you're really high. Like, you're seeing, um, like, a sort of, computer game, strategic, little dots running around type of thing. Um, and you just wanted to get the party started, but you didn't want to start it too early. Like, you know, everyone everyone wanted that team to win. There's a lot of goodwill towards them. Uh, it was really nice seeing all the families, particularly the kids out in the pitch afterwards, just like playing with the glittery goal stuff that they shoot around. Because, you, you know, you see that sort of fireworks and... Uh, then they were shooting all the glitter gold stuff, and you go like, "Who's that for?" And then when like the four and the five and the six year olds come out, you go, "Ah, oh, it's for them." Yeah. <laughs> they should have this in the pitch all the time. Uh, someone's getting to use it and enjoy it. Um, and then the further after the match, so as Hugo was saying, like we we stayed in the ground for a good bit afterwards, took a few photos of different people. Um, it was really nice. Ryan Baird sprinted all the way across the pitch to see his family and friends. James Ryan walked across the pitch. <laughs> He's won one already. Um, Dan so Sheehan in, hopped the barrier. <laughs> Dan Sheehan hopped the barrier to get to his brother, who wasn't allowed into that sort of, I guess, the concourse between the between the the sort of the the end of the stand and the advertising hoarding, the like where the. Stewards, yeah. the LED stuff goes around, and then got a pint, went down into the stand again. The steward said, "No, no, you got to get out." And we were just sort of finishing off a pint. So, over the course of that time, obviously the entire stadium has has pretty much emptied out, and some of the players are still doing their stuff and they're chatting to their, particularly um, about half an hour, thirty five minutes after. You know, they're chatting with their family and friends, and you, you sort of. You get a different sense of of um, that proximity and that ripple because people are able to get close to the players and the players are able like, able to let them get close. So when you're in the match, um, everyone has their allocated seat. You go in your allocated entry and you're very much like you're a spectator stroke. You're, you're more a spectator than a supporter. Um, and, it, you know, like there's very much, there's a show on, it's a play, there's, there's a drama to it. And then as the day trippers thin out and you get down to the friends and family, you, you know, you see how real it is and how happy their families are for them, how happy they are for their families, like all this effort. And, you know, while there's a lot of media attention to it, it really struck me like, geez, now this is really one for the, the squad, the team and their families and that sort of intensity that you go every year at this time when the Six Nations is on. Like it's, a, it's a great tournament at a, at a great time of year for the sport. Um, but particularly when you've won it um, and you've been in that camp, in that environment, uh, it, it, was, it was just, it was lovely. It was lovely to see it. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's, it seems to be like a really tight-knit camp. Um, they're happy in each other's company. And it's a good way to be. It's not a surprise that they do well in a tournament when they've got an environment like that. I'm very uh, not tempted. The opposite. What's the opposite of tempted? Uh, I don't want to go back and listen to us talk about the very start of the Mike Cat uh, backline movement. Um, but I am struck from remembering back at that time how O'Mahony and Sexton, both as senior figures in the team, kept on saying, like, this is the best fun I've ever... Like, this is the best Irish camp I've ever been in. Yeah. Um, 
So it turns out they knew what they were talking about. <laughs> yeah. And Johnny Johnny said that recently, maybe before the Six Nations or some, I think it was Johnny that said, I was saying it was like the best camp. I wasn't just lying, you know, that I knew we were building something. You guys didn't believe me. And we were like amongst the unbelievers. I remember thinking like, you're not supposed to go that work to have loads of fucking fun because certainly I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um... Uh, but it, it seems to have been a really, um, such an integral part of success has been uh, the Good Vibe squad, that players come in from the fringes of the squad to central positions, really key roles, uh, starting in the second row, for example, for Ryan Baird, or coming on off the bench, Tom O'Toole, in every game at Tighthead, and they're playing optimally. They come in with not a huge amount of experience, and they come in and perform extremely well. Like Tom O'Toole's performance off the bench in particular against France was extremely impressive. And Baird has just gone from strength to strength in the last three three games of the tournament. Um, so the good vibes, as I was saying to you before, it, they are extremely difficult to quantify. But at the same time, as I mentioned to you earlier, I hope that how this squad is being managed that there it's been documented in some way uh and then so that you know it's i'm not saying it's a blueprint for every irish squad but you c- can always learn from success and rather than just saying oh it's just a combination of you know big individuals and people at certain times in their career hopefully there's something that uh, other irish squads other Irish uh, national teams or other Irish county teams or anything can can learn from because there's no doubt that a combination of success and happiness is extremely rare in sport but it seems that successful teams are generally happy teams so how do you how do you get there uh, is it incremental that one one shoulder goes up of 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 success and then happiness reaches that and then it goes up again like that, or are you constantly trying to just weave the two at the same rate? That's quite abstract, I know, but yeah. um, it's a difficult thing to to speak about with any... And, and even when the players are speaking about it, say it's a really happy camp, and you're going, well, why? You know, and then it's, uh, some things make it out into the media, such as when they go to training, there's no coaches on the players' bus. Players are on the players' bus, coaches are on the coaches' bus. So that those sort of things, when it goes from being abstract to, yeah, it's a happy camp, that's the abstract. Why is it happy? Because of these examples. That when they have a day off, if it's a real day off, that when they go to training, they're on their own bus, etc. Um, and everyone wants to know more of the insights of how those things work. Every Ruby fan does. Uh, the size of the, the amount of players that are involved, I think, is very interesting. There's 33 in an international World Cup rugby squad. I think we used 32. 32 with Kieran Treadwell. With Kieran Treadwell uh, coming off, which I they kept on saying it as he was coming on, he'll become the 32nd player to be used during the. And I was thinking, are they trying to say that well, that's a lot? Because you would expect that every player in a rugby World Cup squad gets used at some point. So it doesn't seem like a lot. For five games in seven weeks. That's a very good point. Um, I'd never actually thought of it like that. Yeah, you're right. Um, every player in the Rugby World Cup squad should be used. It's a mistake if you bring someone and don't use them. It's a mistake if you bring someone and only use them once. Um, now, sometimes that can happen. Players can hit a particular run of form or on the other hand, obviously players can get injured and just get injured at an inopportune time. An injury that keeps them out for, for say 14 days might keep them out of three matches. Mm. Um, so the 32 tracking across to a 33 in a World Cup squad was, was uh, it's a real, it's a really interesting uh, point because people certainly I'm one of them have been sort of sort of very keen to name their 33 man squad but <laughs> somehow it felt like you have to hold back before like the Six Nations or else you're jumping the gun um, but yeah it's, it's been really some players have really stepped forward in positions where I thought we were potentially weak at tight head prop for example I think Ryan Baird who I always used to refer as like the one in the three plus one 
has now become the fourth in the four second rows, um, which is such positive, such positive uh, aspects of this tournament. Amongst like oh, obviously winning it is huge, but this exposure of players, some chosen, some forced, a lot of force actually, and and their ability to rise to the challenge has been just a treat. Overall, in comparison to last year's Six Nations, where we only lost one game and quite narrowly to France away, um, what do you think the big development of this team is? And I know in between they won the the the, the tour against the All Blacks, which is which is certainly something. <laughs> I would say, like in a very in a like helicopterish looking down in a way. They're not playing that differently from the way they were playing last year. Is there anything you can identify that you think is is like a tactical growth? I think uh, I think the biggest one is mentality. Like I, I think that tour that you briefly alluded to, like winning down in New Zealand, was an absolute turbocharge for a team. Um, so few teams do it. No Irish team had done it. So few teams do it. Like it's worth. It's worth emphasizing that. So, like, just confidence and the the satisfaction that they must have had coming back from that tour, the amount of belief in each other. Spoken a number of times about when you play for a team, uh, how it becomes hard to lose. Like, when you play for a team that wins a lot, it becomes hard to lose because you, you don't panic. Uh, you have a belief that you're going to win, you understand the game is for 80 minutes, and then how that bleeds into other teams that you play for. And so I think, I think that's huge. And then, uh, like, I'm, I'm just looking at the... I, I, I keep an eye every few years on, like, Ireland's first team, Ireland's second team, what age they are at the time. Um, and Farrell's been remarkably consistent with his selections. Now, I, I don't know if that makes him any different from his predecessors. Um, like looking at the team in 2018, it's, it's pretty similar to the team in 2021, which is pretty similar to the team in, in 2023. And then we said like how, I think nine of the guys, I think we said last week, nine of the guys involved this weekend had started in Twickenham in, in 2018. So, um, that consistency of selection has been very good, but I think Farrell has like a real identity to the type of players that he wants, and in particular our wingers. Um, that James Lowe wasn't like an all, he, he wasn't really a hit when he first started with Ireland. Um, he scored he was, a try. He was, he, he was very, very yeah. popular, and he was a real breath of fresh air, and he scored a try, but then... Like, he, he kept shooting off his wing. He got scored on a lot, and he got dropped. And, you know, I think there was there was an element that didn't mind that he got dropped. Um, and he's, he's central. He's not central, but he's... Because there's a lot of players. Um, he's very important to Ireland's game. And then Mack Hansen came out of nowhere... And he got really fast-tracked into that team because he hit the profile. And, okay, Grant, he was playing well, but like, he wasn't playing with that well for that long. Uh, and he was playing well for Connacht, which like, is not a good way to get selected for the Irish team, as, as numerous Connacht guys could tell you. But he really, really fits the profile of what Farrell likes. And, and like we talked, let say we, Hugo in particular, talked about you know the rover role and what footballers what rugby players were, were going to look like, um, sort of based on the on the Queensland Maroons team uh, that plays in Origin, that the idea that you'd have you'd have one or two, well, ideally two or three, probably two athletic freaks on your team, like Greg Inglis, mm -hmm. and then you'd have a load of ballers. You'd have a load of guys who could pass off either hand, who could kick, and who could possibly kick off both feet. And that footballing skill will become more important than just picking guys who are good athletes but not absolute superstar athletes. And I really think that um, Hansen and Lowe fit the bill, that they're not flyers, but they've got 
good kicking game. They're good distributors. Uh, Lowe's defense has really improved since he made his 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 debut. They're both well able to finish, um, as evidenced by various TMO decisions and and the way that they 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 sort of got their tries and the amount of tries that they score. But um, I think that you know that option coming in the first receiver. Um, there's very few articles about how Ireland are completely dependent on Johnny Sexton anymore because various people can come in at first receiver. So that part of the game is really developed. And then even at the weekend, like what England do very well is their physical. Um, they had a lot of line speed. They didn't really compete that often at Rooks. They did make a few turnovers in Rooks. So, you know, they're, they're kind of... Um, like they're very strong and, they, and Jack Willis is very good at the breakdown. So they cause you trouble. But... Um, for a lot of the time, they we we might they'd slow us down the tackle. We'd can like we'd uh, uh, commit three or four guys to the rook, and they'd just they wouldn't bother. They might have won, or they just number up. And for most, like for all the first half, they had fifteen men in the line, or they had thirteen and two back, you know, covering the backfield, and they were well spaced, and they, they took away a lot of our space, and they they caused us. Uh, to make handling errors and to take that away whereas obviously Stewart went off in the second half but England have often attacked like that because they are strong in the breakdown Uh, they do slow you down they do space well they do attack off the line hard and the best way oftentimes is to attack them on the blind side where they tend to hide a few guys who are slower and you just can't come off the line because there aren't as many of you as you can't come off the line as hard as spaced because there aren't as many of you there so uh, Ireland really profited going back blind and the skill set is there to do it. So again, off line outs for the first, oh, I don't know, three, I think. We took it off the top. We sent one of our forwards around the back. We gave it a Bundy and either Bundy crashed it up directly or Bundy took a switch and ran it at Manu. And we really attacked their centres and we seemed to be targeting Manu. and uh, We seemed to be using Aki as the focal point all the time. So then in the... Before Sheen's try, that's what you thought. I, I thought that that's what Ireland would do. So then, when the reverse came, when the reverse pass came to go back inside to Sheen rather than to go out to Bundy, everyone was thinking, Aki's going to get this. You know, he's going to run a Faz, he's going to run a uh, Tuolangi, he's going to try to tie one of the two of them yeah. in. They're going to try to do what they attack like, and we didn't. So that sort of skill set and I, I was looking at it thinking, hmm, Ireland are playing what is in front of them. Like they're they're playing heads up rugby. They, they, they've, they've actually got enough of an understand, a mythical, and I went, all that stuff that they said. And it's not the heads up rugby, which I, I just d- derided as a spoofer's term. It's, it's sort of understanding the cues that the defence has and maybe giving them a few cues to defend in a certain yeah. way and then to realise that once they've committed, change it. Yeah. This is what their defence is like. And and it's it's that very advanced decision-making and the ability to execute the skills that has completely transformed this Irish team over the last uh, three and a half years. It's a great point that you've ended with there, the three and a half years... Ian, we were talking about that on the on the way uh, here today about like how well Andy Farrell has used his time in charge. Um, and I was saying, yeah, especially compared to how how well Ireland have used that time, and compared to definitely England and France, like sorry, England and, England Wales. and Wales, whereas whereas France and Ireland have used the time since the last World Cup really constructively. Would. Yeah, they've had bumps in the road, but they've been going in one direction. Um, and I don't know whether to say that they've been going upwards or going, gathering momentum, if you know what I mean. So sort of downhill momentum, getting better. Um, that's a very confused metaphor. Yeah, it's all downhill from here. It usually means it's a bad thing, yeah. but it's the best part of any journey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so whereas England, who had, they did win, I was just reminding myself that they had won the, the 2020 Six Nations, the COVID Six Nations that was broken up into two parts. So England didn't just fall off the cliff after Rugby World Cup 19, but they were extremely well placed. They looked brilliantly placed 
to uh, be a very successful team, a dominant team even, from 2019 through to the next World Cup in terms of the age profile of their players, how they played in the World Cup. Like their, their performance against Australia was probably, it didn't get the same headlines as their performance against New Zealand, but it was, it was excellent. And, um, and they have fumbled around and fucked it up. I always like that phrase from, from Goodwill Hunting, watching somebody fumble around and fuck it up. Um, and Wales didn't have that momentum. I sort of thought with that Gatland had a, a certain magic when he was with Wales in his long first stint and that they would return to, uh, return to the pack once he had gone. But both sides announced the successor to take them through to the World Cup. Um, and then essentially <coughs> bottled it uh, with less than a year to go to the World Cup, have changed horses in midstream. And they both had really poor... Uh, Wales had a dreadful Six Nations and, and England had a really poor Six Nations. Whereas Ireland and France have stuck at the task in hand now that's been helped by their the climb all the time of their performances and, and no scandals but uh, it's a, it's been a great example of how to use your time wisely um, I'm going to ask you both quickly about the red card in the match yeah I have so many thoughts on it and frankly I have no idea how you're supposed to come to a conclusion on it. If you'd been given a yellow card, I would have been like, fine. If we were given a penalty, I probably would have been like, fine. And I'm also fine with the red card. Yeah. That's, that's how I feel about it. I don't feel strongly about it. Yeah. You know, I don't have a hot take or anything. When it, when it happened at the time, I thought, oh, Keane's got a bang in the head there. They look at that. I, I didn't leave from my seat and brandish the imaginary red card or anything. I was a little bit surprised when he got red. You get to see it quite a few times on the on the screens in the stadium, and I thought, the more you see it, the worse it looks. Um, but you can say that with an awful lot of an awful lot of uh, foul play incidents. Um, at the at the time it happens, I thought we'd probably get a penalty. He might even get yellow carded for it. I I don't think uh, I think he's I think he's a clean player. Pretty sure I don't agree that he had, you know, he he uh, had decided that I was gonna, you know, give him my elbow and shoulder. I just think that he was sort of protecting himself. But the nature of I'm just gonna extrapolate a little bit of this. When coaches say they want consistency, they only want consistency when it suits them. Are you not consistency when it doesn't suit them? They want. Uh, common, sense. common sense like every you know a lot of English fans whose comments I read in different websites and below the line in different places uh, you know saying oh it's a unique circumstance this was unique and every single collision on a rugby pitch in every game is unique it's a different game different personnel involved different time yeah but they're all classified in various well, ways that's, that's my, my point you have to abstract it, or else you, or else you just come to a completely wild series of of uh, decisions. So you have to try and classify them, and in the abstract, you don't say if player if player you know fourteen is running at player thirteen. It's not like the train leaves the station. You're saying if there's a collision, and if the player gets hit in the head by the tackling player, this is what happens. So they try to classify it like that. And, you know, that's the route that this classification and consistency can bring you down. Like, in my opinion, he might have said, oh, there's mitigation. He didn't expect the player to run so hard after a knock-on. You know, so I, 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 don't, feel, I don't feel strongly about it. I don't feel he was... Um, the one thing I really just don't buy about it is that either the, what was he supposed to do or he was trying to protect himself. Because you don't do that in rugby. You don't turn your side and put your elbow out or your shoulder. Like, the way to protect yourself in a situation like that is to, like, soak tackle them into your gut and fall backwards because you know you already have a knock-on. Yeah. Like, I don't know why he's turning his side and holding himself strong. Yeah. I think, I don't think he's a dirty player. I think everyone on a rugby pitch, now, bear in mind it's 20 years since I played a game of rugby, 
like has is totally within their rights to like hold their shoulder firm and bump someone like it's a big physical game and that is the least of their you know your worries in a normal situation i don't think he's a dirty player i do think he meant it and like i just yeah i'd be what a bit it's, it's the the real annoying thing is that keenan fails at hia i think yeah. more than anything else um andy what do you think what do you think I was surprised um, Piper red carded him. Be- the personality of the ref. Piper's a real boys will be boys referee. But, no, but sorry, to, even to cut across you before you go mm. in, it's like Piper did a in the current climate, which is punches pilot. I'm watching his hands. I, I, sorry, mate. I got no opportunity. The woke left strung me up here. <laughs> like. Oh yeah, but I I think I I didn't know that I I zoomed through it and I was rewatching the match. I didn't hear the commentary, um, but that means it's working. That means it's actually getting through. That particularly with a guy like Piper, particularly when he washes his hands of yeah, particularly the raging progressive liberals. Have, <laughs> they have woken me. But I mean, basically, I won't get to riff in the World Cup if I don't red if don't red card him. You know. Yeah, and you're just there going perfect. That's the trade-off. Or even if you get like a little macho hard man like Piper, um, the message is read yeah. because the 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 game just can't. It won't exist in a number of years with lawsuits if they just allow guys to concuss each other. Like it's 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 um like I get the macho southern hemisphere shit. Like I know oh game you know it's going soft, but like it doesn't matter. There won't be a game. Like the, the short term of it, it's a short termism of the game's gone soft. Uh, like just beyond belief. Yeah, seven years ago, Piper refed the New Zealand uh, Ireland game in in Lansdowne Road after Ireland beat New Zealand in Chicago, and it was one of the most egregious high tackles from Fekitoa and Zebo that I've fucking ever seen, including like the seventies games with those filthy French teams playing. And he's like, oh, you look good. <laughs> that is a red card and like a 10-week ban these days. Yeah. You know? And it was a red card and a 10-week ban back then as well. So, you know, they've got... The woke left have gotten a Jack Piper. <laughs> I stole that joke from Tom Lowe. I'm just going to say that if he's listening. Okay. <laughs> Someone needs to stop him. Referee blows for half time. I watched the... This is the it was... The only um, full game I was able to watch of the Ireland under-20s this year. And um, it definitely was something to do with the hangover and the shiny Musgrave Park uh, synthetic surface. I was just like, this game is so frantic and we're clearly going to win this one as well. Wow, what a talented team. What an unbelievably fast-paced game. Like, genuinely, it seemed like there was a jackal every third rook. Mm. And Ireland, when they stumbled a bit at the end, just went... All right, lads, just go up there and score another try. That's and, and it just seemed like they decided it. There's so many star players. Obviously, Sam Prendergast is taking a lot of attention. He looks to have every tool you need in the kit. Um, but I thought um, the scrum half, Finton Gunn, and the two monsters in the pack also stood out for me. Yeah, Brian Gleeson was great again. The under-19, number eight uh, from Tipperary, he was super. Uh, I was I was like you. I just I was so complacent watching that match. Going, we're definitely going to win this. Um, and they, and it was yeah, it was absolutely frantic. I didn't have the same like harrowing hangover vision of it. I was quite hungover, but not as bad as you make it sound. Um, yeah, super confident. They're such a they're such a uh, confident and well coached team. Um, that they look so dangerous. Um, Macklin was super dangerous. The the left winger, the conic left winger, whose name escapes me at the moment, just kept on kept on running. He seemed to have acres of space to run into, um, and and then Paddy McCarthy had a great game. I thought Gus McCarthy, the the hooker and captain, had the best game of, of his uh, tournament. And they're a really enjoyable team to watch. They play very similar brand to the national team it's a Leinster and um England had picked such like England some of the English lads were huge uh Neville Chamberlain Southall at number eight and then Chesham's brother in the second row was fucking very angry ginger 
throughout the game. Very angry. Um, and just had a huge pack, but we look like we have a big, strong, very athletic pack in our Their pack wasn't as athletic as ours, I felt. Bigger, but not as athletic and not as well coached. They're not a they're not a bad English side. They're not a patch on previous English sides, which, you know, seven through to, you know, say six through to 10, 11 years ago, you'd come to fear they would always be the best team in the Six Nations. Uh, and now we look like we're always going to be the best team in the Six Nations. You'd certainly think we'd be the best team for the next, I don't know, eight years to a decade. Again, just, just going back to birth rates. So this team is, like, we're going to get better. That's the thing. Like, this team was all born in 2002, 2000, 2003, I guess, really. If yeah, 2003, 2004. 2004. Birth rates only go up. Mm. Like, gets only gets higher, like, for the next number of years. Um, I, I just, this is something I thought about before when you mentioned the birth rates and the kind of theory of big numbers. Does that not, is that not counteracted by the fact that there's only a very limited amount of places that are producing rugby players as in mostly private rugby, private fee-paying rugby schools, and then there's the, obviously the rugby clubs, but they produce way less. Like, the funnel is pretty small anyway that all these big numbers are going into. Yeah, to, to, to a certain extent, but I think with kind of, I don't know, talent identification, and there's, there's, there's more chance of the clubs producing... Just better, better players. Just because there's more, there's more players available to be better athletes. Yeah. yeah, there's more chance of guys ending up going to Michaels and Rock who wouldn't have otherwise gone, like who aren't from near Michaels or Rock, who just end up in Michaels or Rock. I suppose because those, it's a rugby yeah. finishing school, or they get a scholarship. To, I don't know if Clongos give out scholarships or Glenstow. They just end up going to a rugby school because they started playing it. They're deadly. They they kept playing it during their teens. They're incredibly athletic they get a scholarship to one of those schools. So to all intents and purposes, it looks like the school's system is developing them. But it's just, it's, and I don't know, it's just a conduit. Like it's, it's, you're just more likely to have better players if you have yeah. more of them. You have more players. So your players say, say you've the same amount of, like just to abstract it again, say your 14 players from year one to year two are the same standard. But in year two, you might have better five better players. Like your your fifteen to twenty players might be better than the previous year. That's because mm. the funnel, the numbers going into the funnel means that a guy who might have been good enough three years ago now isn't good enough. You know, or a guy of his equivalent ability. So your team just gets stronger. And say your say your guys slightly outside the either the starting fifteen or the match day twenty three, they're better as well. Yeah. And yep. they're training. They're training to get into that team, so they're raising the standard of the fellas above them. Like it's not the only factor, just as like the schools aren't the only factor. It's very, it's a very complicated mix of things. Like coaching plays a huge, like how you're coached as a team for the team you're playing in has a massive, a massive difference. Like Richie Murphy has proved himself to be an outstanding head coach at this level and you know it's really interesting to see where where he goes next you know if he does it again and and just i think the other things are that the type of rugby that the senior team play the international team does have a, a massive influence on what underage teams how they play so i didn't i saw a little bit of the black rock gonzaga match but the bit i saw like the, the quality of the handling the quality of the running lines, uh, just you know, the general skill level was was excellent. The final last year was also brilliant. You didn't see this year's final. This year's either. final was a cracker. Yeah. You know, so you you just kind of going right, like they're they're kind of the that's the sort of player we're uh, producing now, and you know, I, I think people have pointed towards there. There was one. There's one bit of the match on Saturday, so the senior international where James Lowe caught it over his head. This is on the left hand, the east touchline of the second half. James Lowe caught it over his head. Bundy went in and ripped it, uh, made a bit of a run, dragged in defenders, gave it to Gibbo, and you're there going, ah, our Kiwis are, <laughs> our Kiwis are better than your Kiwis are. Um, so, like, just that 
that sort of hardwired New Zealand instinct and and sort of whole skill set and like you know willingness to run. Um, so that's kind of a non secular, but it's it's that. There's there's better players coming through from Ireland all the time. Like the the skill level is higher, the individual decision making is higher, the game and the, these guys are they're pretty better coached, but the coaching is a bit more sympathetic rather than the mechanical stuff that we would have been doing oh, five to ten years ago. And look, the, the mechanical stuff served us well. Like we were well organized teams, and you'd certainly see Irish teams that are less physically gifted. Uh, get results that they shouldn't get because um, they understand how to get the most out of their game plan. But once you get a group of kids, like we changed our second rows and there was no drop off. Like the second rows that were coming in were as good as the second rows who started, who were good. Um, like to have a back row with Rune Quinn and Gleason and then McNabney, but like McNabney played last year, like Rune Quinn and Gleason were excellent like mm. they're exciting guys to watch and you're sort of going like you look at Hodnett and Ken Dellen in front of them and you go I don't know if Hodnett and Ken Dellen are going to be holding off those young lads for too much longer like the two lads are beast players yeah um, like they're huge and they're fast you know um, and then you see Paddy McCarthy and I thought Paddy McCarthy like irritated me in the French game with all those flicks that he kept doing he changed his game completely. He was excellent. Taken, didn't try any flicks, showed really good judgment on pick and drives, like almost constantly went forward, acted as a focal point, won gain line all the time. And you know he has the skills. Like you know he's a guy that's going to be going into first receiver sort of role and he's going to be able to throw short passes behind him. He's going to be able to show throw short passes to players. He's really going to be able to throw a long pass. Like he's, he's, a, super, like he's a super footballer. Um, but again, like that judgment got much better, much quicker. Um, so, like it was, they'd be better next year, yeah, or to be as good next year as well. That's the thing. You made a really good point there about uh, Gibson Park and Bundy and James Lowe for the senior team, and like the sort of the uh, their uh, their willingness to attack all the time is something that Irish. Like it's you see it more from the way that, for example, that you know even at schoolboy level that the Black Rock and Gonzaga final uh, showed, and that players are more and more willing to attack, less conservative, and they're coached to be less conservative. There's less of a fear of they're they're better off, you know, holding on to the ball and not making mistakes, and and you know I you can. See that in the, in the Irish game, and you, like there's there's a certain point that Trimble and, and Quinlan were commentating on you. Oh, Ireland need to put England through the phases, um, and certainly when you're you're 15 against 14, I can see the value of that. But on the other hand, if you decide, oh, we're not going to, we're going to play more one out, we're going to take them through the phase, make sure we have our own ball, not try any risky passes. You're inviting a load of breakdown, inviting a load of breakdown pressure. Are you? You know how are you actually trying to to win the game? Uh, you're going into your shell out of your own volition there. Now I'm not saying that there's no merit to the argument, but we see less of that than ever before. There's less of a there's fewer calls to oh just I need to go through the phases. So going through the phases is is a means is the end itself. Whereas going through the phases should be like. You ask different questions of the fence loads of times, so you make them make loads of decisions and confuse them, and then you're always probing, not just holding on to the ball and saying, "Oh, we did 16 phases there." Let me like an incredibly stretched metaphor that stretches uh, that. across two different uh, sports. You know the way um, that kind of like keeping the ball, using the clock, sort of passive, uh, or how we call it, um, keeping the ball in, in 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 any ball sport, any ball team sport. I always think of the way, like, say the dubs were quite, got better at it, but initially started being like, this idea that possession was a mantra that came from, like, watching Barcelona. Yeah. And so they, they, they'd start dicking around their own half and passing the ball around their own half, but they didn't really fundamentally get it. But they were just going to, like, 
these lads can't get it off us, so we'll just pass it around here. And they just invited pressure on themselves because they were like, the whole team's going to suck up. And then you see, like, I, and I, I often think about it, the end of the, the Champions League final in, in Kiev when, like, uh, Bale had scored the third goal and Karius had chucked it in. Real Madrid just passed the ball around. They've obviously, like, three of the best midfielders in the world. Liverpool knackered chasing it. And they're just passing the ball around. And, like, the ball would move up the pitch, down the pitch. Didn't matter. It was always just sucking people away and then relieving pressure. And it's like, that's a team who knows how to, like, go through the phases. And, like, mm. we're not even going to try and score here. We'll just we'll let you go out of shape. Because we, we are, like, in, in charge of this situation. So the same thing is in, like, in rugby. If you're going through the phases, yeah. Like, if the ball is quick and you're hitting the gain line and you're, like, making them fucking completely reset their gain, reset their line by a yard every time... You're making them guess then it's good yeah but it's just like let's just bash it up here for like uh, four phases lads just so uh the, maybe we'll get a scrum at the end of it and waste another minute like yeah that's not the point i thought the dubs actually played their best possession football soon after they adopted it and then and then got worse right maybe um, yeah, you, yeah. You're, you're, you're closer right than me i'm gonna jump back another to another point just about the the funnel getting wider because i actually think it's worth addressing or acknowledging Gonzaga won their first cup and like not that long after Ross Gray won their first cup. So there still might only be a few funnels into the system, but they're all probably getting trained by professional coaches now. Uh, like Birch t- coaches Newbridge or is he Ross Gray? No, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Murphy, Murphy coaches Newbridge. Like George Naupo is, is director of rugby. In, um, yeah, these places have directors of Gonzaga. rugby and they have coaches who are getting paid by the school as well. The schools have a lot of money. They are. They have a lot of interested parents. So, like, I guess it is. There's still relatively few uh, ways into that system, but like, they're all better. It's not just like, did you go to BlackRock now? Yeah, it was like, it, you know, for the for the Leinster Senior Cup, which is an incredibly long history. It's amazing to have at this stage when you know the you know it seemed like the arms race had gotten to a stage where everyone was getting whittled off, apart from you know the big six had gone down to the big sort of three slash four. And then to have more recently, you know, Newbridge, Ross Cray and, and, and Gonzaga end up as, as, as champions. I think Newbridge were halved the cup in the, in the COVID year. It's, you know, it's unexpected for me, uh, in the overview term, but having seen Zaga play in, in, you know, finals i think they've been this was their third final in four years or mm. second final in three years like they're obviously that's where you know it's it's a it's another it's another sort of pipeline i would say is, has opened up i wouldn't say it's part of a funnel. i'd say it's a new a new well mm. um also notable uh in the under 20s table was that italy finished third and, and got a bonus point in every match it's try yeah. scoring bonus point in every match um and are good, you know, ran France very close, gave us a good, you know, a good hard match and finished above England in the table. That's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. Yeah. Like, whatever, I mean, I watched that England game. It wasn't like, oh, the English underage system is in disarray. It was like, this isn't a particularly great year. Like, they have big players, they... There's no, there was no one I, w- I thought was a, a star. I thought Chesley was good. I kept on noticing him, and then I was getting confused. and was like, doesn't he play for the senior team? Didn't realize he was <laughs> What's Big Ron Weasley so angry about? <laughs> exactly. Where's the Bertzert? Where's the Bertzert for your fucking angry ginger giant? <laughs> but I, I mean, I wasn't like, I was looking at him and was like, oh, well, have you heard about the senior 20s? So they're terrible. It's like, this is just like, oh, yeah, we're better than this year. We beat them. It was a fiery match. Lots of action, and I was like, they finished like Italy finished above them. That's, yeah, like that's incredible and really uh, heartening. Italy still, obviously, the senior team has like a um, penchant for pressing the self destruct. Yeah, they're fine. Like so much better than they were, though. Yeah, that's the. That, I think that's the thing where it, it it's it's now what seven seasons out of eight where they've gotten the wood like whitewashed mm-hmm. and they've one win in, in Wales to show for it. But at the same time, you're looking at it going like, yeah, but they played good rugby in all of those games for periods. And it's maybe... Oh, just the best Italian team yeah, I've seen in years. Maybe they... 
I don't know. They just need to have Caputo for an entire tournament. Maybe they need a bit of luck. Maybe they need a, a seismic moment that makes everyone believe. They need refs to stop fucking them as well. They uh, get a hard time from the refs. Um, they really do. Angus Gardner, like it was amazing. Oh, we watched, I watched the match with you, the end game of that uh, Italian match, and you know they were they were in very close to actually stealing it from the Scots, and they would have sold the Scots with a better team on the day. And they had a cast iron pen in front of the post, like unbelievably bad miss, egregious miss. It's not just Gardner, it's TMOs as well. Against the Welsh, the Italians made a lot of mistakes and that piled into the frustration that they had with, with the ref. They don't go into two separate piles. It all just goes into a frustration pile. But in this one, I think they were far more frustrated with the ref than with their own mistakes. Mm. Um, they get a hard time from the refs. They don't get it. They don't get a fair shake. They're the, they're the small team. We've said it before when before when Ireland were the small team. You say you, you don't get the calls and you don't. Um, it's not. I don't think it's willful. I just think refs are expecting to see something. Like, and if you look at if you look at how. I'm going to give Angus Gardner a benefit of the doubt, which I don't feel. If you look at how Italy have played this year and how many chances they've wasted in the five-meter uh, area close to their opposition line, he saw that one. He, he probably just thought, this is just another wasted Italian chance rather than Italy always score in these positions. Something must be wrong. Like Your brain can work very quickly. Mm. And I think that's how he saw it. And I have to say, the Scottish attack of that scrum was sensational. Um, a final thought. Uh we're talking about the uh, increase in like talented Irish players, the like journey from lads who run around and hit stuff and do all the things, the mechanical things you tell them to growing international players. I had this just this memory, and also as you mentioned, the three Kiwis in our team. This memory of Duncan Rossiter doing commentary on an Ireland game, and our dad put a, the radio commentary on on while the TV was showing because Duncan Rossiter had been coaching in Terrier College. Mm. And he, he just kept on saying, basic errors. So many basic oh, yeah. errors. Yeah. I, just, I just remember it's like, it must have been what, 96, 97? It, maybe before that. Before that. Maybe yeah. earlier. 92. Yeah. I would have said. Yeah. And real just like, he, it, like he'd come over here being like, he'll get a job teaching the Irish how to play rugby. And he's like, they can't even fucking pass the ball. Yeah. Can't catch it, they can't tackle. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, like, can't do any of the normal shit you do in rugby. Yeah, it's like a film where they go and treat someone to play baseball and fucking Sumatra <laughs> or something like that. So anyway, bit of a journey from, from, there, from there to here to Nick, Nick the title of uh, Brent Fanning's book. Yeah. Anyway, good journey. Good team at the moment. Well great, done to them. Literally a great team at the moment. I'd like to say one last thing. Uh, are we talking about the World Cup squad, possibly? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Let's so, go ahead. So, but second last thing then. Um, that as far as I'm aware, Johnny Sexton hasn't announced his retirement, but it's just taken that, like, this is his last Six Nations match. And I was there going, he's obviously learned, or say, I, I presume he's learned from Drico that just don't make it a long goodbye and, like, have people, you know, like, putting up massive posters and that sort of stuff. That he's... He sort of avoided that. Um, as a consequence, like nobody said anything about Keane Healy. Keane Healy is one of like has had one of the great Irish careers, and that was possibly his last Six Nations match at home. Like I don't know what Keane is going to do. He he could well play on because he's an he's an incredible athlete. But um, if he doesn't, I just think it's worth noting that he's he's magnificent. Oh, amen. Super player, great career. Yeah, testify. They don't build him like that anymore. He won't like that. He's one of a kind. Dying to talk about it. <laughs> and we're now all picking our World Cup squads, even though there's six months to go. Just because we're so good at the moment, we can't wait for it to bloody start. Uh, I don't want to formulate this in you listing off the names of players. I'll just say, where do you think the gaps are in the squad where you don't think it's certain who's going to be? One position in the back three. Uh one position in the 10 or 12, three tens or two definite 12s, uh, one position in the back row, maybe. Yeah, I think that there's a, I think that this, I, I don't think that the end of the season is a dead rubber. 
I think that there are positions to play for, but they are relatively few, as you would hope hope they would be. You don't want to be scratching around in the dark to try and find some fucking bolter, you know, but you do want to allow a player who is close to breaking into the team. If he plays great and is just in shit-hot form, then you don't want to exclude him just for the sake of excluding him. But yeah, I think, it's, I think there's a lot of uh, certainties. I think there's a lot of certainties. I picked a squad uh, earlier today off the top of my head and I ended up with 34 names. And I'll run quickly through the split and then the names as I see them that are sort of yellow, right? So I picked 34 names in this, right? So six props, three hookers, shit. Uh, how many second rows did I have? Five second rows, five back rows, three scrum halves, three out halves, four centers, and five back three players. Yeah. Okay. So then my sort of highlighted names that I think one of these guys is going to miss out Kilcoin. I'm sort of cheating here. The Prendergast McCarthy. I'm, I'm sort of, I don't really mind which one misses out. I just think one of those guys. That that number five second row is is, is going to lose out. Uh, Will Connors, uh, Crowley, McCloskey. That's it. So they're the names. And my rationale is that you have to bring three hookers. Do you need to bring three loose heads? I don't know. Um, you, there's definitely four second rows going, and it'd be Byrne, Ryan, Henderson, Baird, and it's like, do you need the fifth? And I'm sort of picking like Prendergast there because he can play back row. And I'm only picking five back rows. You're definitely going to go Manny Vanderfleer, Dar- Conan, Doris. Do you bring Will Connors? Or, you know, do you move Prendergast into that sort of... Does Prendergast bounce out Connors? Um, in which case you can bring Kilcoin. But, like, you, you only have one open side and you, you don't have a really good defender. Do you bring Crowley? Like, you, you pretty do because Sexton's going to be injured. <laughs> like, it's inevitable. Well, Sexton's also going to be rested. He's going to be 38. So you want to play him against South Africa... And then you want to play him quarterfinal and not semifinal and final, hopefully. You don't want him to have to fucking be like sitting on the bench fucking against Tonga. Slammed against Tonga. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and come on after 10 minutes when somebody takes Ross Burns' head off. Like. And then you're going, like, do you, do you bring McCloskey? If like Henshaw and Aki can play first centre, is, is it worth bringing McCloskey, who is good but can only play first centre? If you've already got two good first centres. Yeah, because our, our games go Romania, Tonga, uh, South Africa, Scotland in, in the group stage. So it goes very easy. You can send it any team. Potentially, like Tonga could be a, will be a physical game. It could be a tough game as well. They'll have a lot of returning All Blacks. They'll have Piatau, Fekatoa, uh, might have Izzy Falau. They'll have other good players. Like That's going to be a tough game. And then you have South Africa, which is going to be the toughest game in the group series, and then you have Scotland. So my feeling is that, like, do you want... F- Peter Manley's going to be 34 over there. Um, how many games do you want him to play at blindside in a row? Josh van der Fleer is the fittest player in the Irish, the fittest forward in the Irish squad, but are we only going to travel with one open side and then say, oh, Manley's our backup open side? And you're going, well, how does this work, like... You're going to ask one player to play in every game all the way through, or can you say, if we bring a backup open side and he plays 80 minutes in the first two games, then you get Josh van der Fleer fitter for the rest of the games, Peter Romani protected for the rest of the games, the more meaningful games. Like Once a player gets a start and a bench spot, or preferably two starts, uh, the likes of Tom O'Toole, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking here, or Finley Bealham, Kilcoyne, Keane Healy, it's worth having them in the squad. You don't want a guy who's going to sit on the bench for two games and make play, say... 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Like, that's a fucking waste of a... That's a waste of a spot. And, the, and, and this is the bit that I was sort of going through, gaming it in my head, that, like, to me, Kilcoyne is... Kilcoyne and McCluskey are sort of the obvious guys to lose out there because... They're so specific and you've already got strength. So in, in, one, in one scenario, it's pointless bringing Kilcoin because Porter plays 80 minutes every single match. Keane Healy's really fit and is really good quality. So you can easily play Keane for 60 minutes in a match where you need to rest Porter and just bring Porter on for 20 minutes. And you can move Bealham over to, to Lucid mm-hmm. if needs be. 
The only downside is if Porter gets injured, do you want to bring in a replacement for him and sort of acknowledge that you don't that he's gone out of your squad? Like if he gets injured in a match, an early match, and you think shit, he could be back in three weeks, do you not just hold on to him in your squad? So yeah. you sort of have to think through it like that. And then you're going, like, how much is Prendergast or, or McCarthy really going to bring to you? Um, you already have four deadly second rows, and two of them can play blindside very effectively. So, like, do you need Keen Prendergast to be, uh, like, a, a second division, Brian Baird or, or Ty Burns? You obviously don't. Um, I think Will Connors has to go. And do you think it's Connors specifically, or do you think an order, like, if, if would you be prepared to play, say, Penny or Hodnett or Timoney as as the number seven against Romania and Tonga, and therefore they've they've made their contribution to the squad and they've protected Josh for those two games, so that he still has energy in the tank in a quarter final, semi final, final, and then I think that there's there's quite a gulf. Like Will Connors has nine caps. I think he'd have more if he hadn't been injured recently, mm-hmm. and. He's, he's a game changer at international level, even at international level, in the way that the other three aren't. That uh, his, his defending, his tackling is just so incredibly good that... Um, yeah, like in a quarterfinal situation, I'd be much, much happier with Will Connors playing rather than Penny Hodden and Timothy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, without a shadow of a doubt in my mind. Like, I would I would have... It looks sort of unlikely at the moment, but it looked unlikely three months ago that Ross Byrne would be in a World Cup squad. And I had him probably as third choice out of half back then because I was still thinking you're going to need... At that stage, I was thinking you need two out of halves. Joey's very injury-prone. You want to protect Johnny, so you need definitely need three out of halves. Ross Byrne isn't injury-prone. He doesn't, doesn't injure himself, you know, because he's... Knocking, knocking on wood there. You know, he doesn't... He's, he's, he's resilient. Um, and, like, my feeling about Ross is Ross plays... It's like, it's what... If you pick Crowley, do you give him... Like, what do you do with him? Do you just sit him on the bench for the first two games and then go, that's, that's enough? You'll play 20 minutes in each game of games that we're going to win or do you say in the first game he plays 12 where he's played a lot of rugby this season uh, outside Ross at 10 and you're going well, why do we want Crowley playing 12 if we're picking a, someone to play 12 yeah if you're bringing McCloskey but I think even, yeah, it's often that you find talking about it is the best I think the the, the Prendergast McCarthy choice the, just neither of them go and then you pick the other 33 that are left I think you have to bring Crowley because his upside is just so much greater. Plus, he's you know he's viable at he's you know he's viable at ten, and that he's had exposure to the squad. Carberry's not in that at all. And I was there going, oh geez, like a few weeks ago, going, oh Carberry will go to the World Cup. No, no, he won't. I don't even have him. Don't even have him listed. I was exactly the same. I thought, yeah, he'll probably go as our third choice. And you're going, why? You know, he doesn't. Like he, I think the fact that it's he more likely in, that that Frawley would go now, in, in my opinion, than than Carberry. Yeah, I think the fact that he wasn't in the squad for the Six Nations is massive because you look at how settled uh, Farrell's team selections are, and you look at how easy it is to name thirty three, thirty four names. That he's he's big into combinations and. Uh, it's it's a strong squad. Do you have Larmer, by the way? Yeah. In the back, yeah. Yeah. Larmer, Jimmy O'Brien. Hanson, Larmer, Lowe, Keenan, O'Brien. Yeah. Four, four fullbacks and a winger. Freedom and love, 
what he's looking for. One more 